Amen. The word of God reads from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, reading through verse 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. As you remain standing, will you join me in prayer? Father, we ask that you would come now and that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. And that we, Father, as a result of this text and this message, walk out of this room more like your son, Jesus. For his glory and in his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's good to be back. Greetings from our family to yours. Audrey and I left here three years ago with three children. Uh, we're returning this time with four children. And uh, just it's a joy to be able to worship with you today. Uh, greetings also from our church, Cleveland Road Baptist Church. Uh, there's a deep love and appreciation for all that this body has done for us through sending us and praying for us. And so we are forever grateful for the ministry at Bull Street. Uh, the mark of a healthy, vibrant church is when you return, you don't recognize many faces. And that was the case this morning. As I walked through the halls and even standing before you today, I know, I know some, but I don't know many. And that's a joy to be able to see the Lord at work. And uh, for those of you that were baptized today, praise God, what an absolute honor and privilege it was to be able to watch. And I, I love the move that you did. Uh, yeah, there we go. Well, <clears throat> this morning I'm dropping into a series that y'all are doing on 2 Corinthians. And uh, before studying this text, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, I knew generally about the Corinthian church. But to my regret, I didn't know a whole lot about this particular book, 2 Corinthians. And so in part to bring all of us up to speed, but more for my sake, just so I'm on the same page as everyone here, let me give us a little bit of background, especially because our text this morning deals with geography and a timeline and a man named Titus. So it's going to be important for us to all kind of know where we are in this narrative. Uh, so in Acts chapter 18, Paul plants a church in Corinth, which was a very secular, vibrant, popular coastal city. And after leaving Corinth to do further ministry, he receives word that the church in Corinth is not doing too well. Things are not going great. And we read of some of those issues in 1 Corinthians. Um, church members are showing up inebriated to the Lord's Supper. Young men are taking their father's second wives to be their new lovers. 
Members of the congregation are suing one another. There are disorderly outbursts in the public gathering. Uh, It's just a wild scene. Like if you thought the state of the church was bad in 2023, go back to first century Corinth and it wouldn't hold a candle. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians, which is a straightforward letter with considerable rebuke and correction. But unfortunately, he finds out later that many at the church in Corinth have not heeded his warning. So he goes and visits them. Uh, Calvin talked about this last week. He even describes it in 2 Corinthians 1 as the painful visit. Now, after this painful visit, Paul writes a second letter to the church at Corinth, what most would call the severe letter. We don't have a copy of that letter, but it's this letter which starts to recalibrate the church at Corinth, really helps them walk in the ways of Christ in which they had strayed. Uh, Now we pick up in our text today, and we notice that he is in a new place, in a new place, okay? Sometime after that painful visit and the severe letter, Paul is doing ministry in Ephesus, which is another city where he planted a church. And we read in Acts 19 that there was a riot in Ephesus, which pushed Paul out of the city. And to where did he go? Well, he went to Troas. That's where our text picks up today. In Troas, he plans to meet with a faithful gospel partner, a man by the name of Titus. So probably what happened was on his way to Troas or just before going, he sends word to get Titus to come meet him in Troas because he wants to have a rendezvous with Titus in Troas. Try saying that three times fast. And the reason he wants to connect with Titus in Troas is to hear of the Corinthian church. Okay. He wants to know how is that church that I love so dearly, that I made the painful visit to, that I wrote the severe letter to, how are they doing in the faith? So we pick up in verse 12. I'm going to read it once more. Just follow along where you are. He writes, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went to Macedonia. So once again, Paul has left Ephesus. He's traveled to Troas in part to meet up with Titus, but because he's the apostle Paul, the greatest Christian that's ever lived, he can't go anywhere without attempting to do some sort of gospel ministry. So he also goes to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. The end of verse 12, it tells us that there was a door that was open for Paul in the Lord, meaning there was some gospel ministry that started in Troas, whether he intended it for it to start or whether he just got there and said, I'm going to do gospel ministry, whatever the case is, by the providence of the Lord, a door is opened. Now, this certainly isn't the point of our text, but I do think it's worth noting that like Paul's ministry work in in Troas, which the Lord divinely brought about, all evangelistic doors are opened as a result of the Lord's hand. And frankly, this is where we start as evangelists with the prayer that the Lord would open the doors. So most of us are familiar with the apostle Paul. We know that he was a missionary, an evangelist, a church planter. He loved people. And the best way that he knew to love people was to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what he's doing in Troas. A door had been opened for him in the Lord. And so he's preaching, as he so often does. But I want us to notice that even the most dedicated evangelists 
will grow discouraged. In fact, verse 12 is not necessarily there to tell the Corinthian church that he went to Troas to preach the gospel. It's really to tell them that despite him preaching the gospel, he still found that his soul was troubled. Look at verse 13. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Now, the reason Paul was distressed at Titus's absence wasn't because Titus owed him money. No, the reason that Paul was distressed at no sign of Titus was because that meant no report of the church that he loved, no report from the Corinthians. Certainly he wants to see Titus, but more than that, he wants to know how are my beloved saints in Corinth doing? And Titus's absence was in this case discouraging because it probably insinuated to Paul that the church had not responded well to this severe letter, or perhaps that the work was so delicate and so severe that Titus had to remain in Corinth and his absence meant things aren't going well. But whatever the case, Paul was deeply troubled at no sign of Titus. Friends, I want us to see here that the heart of a shepherd for the church that he loved is a heart that's concerned. Even in the midst of gospel ministry in Troas, in his inner man, his spirit becomes distressed. And anyone who's ever been in ministry knows this feeling all too well. Discouragement is a reality of the life of every preacher, every evangelist, every missionary, every church planter, every pastor. But not just clergy, those of us who make a living preaching the gospel, all of us know all too well that discouragement is present in the life of every believer, especially in the face of evangelism, which may surprise some people because I would venture to say that most of us are not evangelizing as we should. Uh, we just heard Pastor Calvin quote from Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That is what evangelism is at the core. And I would say that most of us, I, in fact, I don't know if I've ever heard somebody say, I evangelize as much as I think I should, or I evangelize more than I think I should. Most of us would say we don't evangelize as we should. Uh, whether that's because we're fearful, whether it's because it's inconvenient, we're too busy, we have a perceived lack of knowledge, we all struggle with this spreading of the gospel. And you know what I often hear? As I say, I hear people say, Pastor, please pray for me. I'm discouraged because I'm not sharing the gospel enough. And almost what's implied in that is that when we start sharing the gospel, then we will be encouraged and discouragement will dissipate. Well, friends, that's all well and good until we start evangelizing and we come to realize that some of the darkest times in a Christian's life, some of the deepest burdens that we feel, some of the hardest seasons of discouragement come in the midst of faithful evangelism. For those of us in this room, Perhaps you who are always on mission, evangelizing at every opportunity, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's this strange line we walk. There's this dance that we do through life, which we know we must share the gospel. We even know that the Lord opens every door for the gospel to be shared, but we're discouraged. Because often every time we take a step forward, it seems like we're pushed two steps back. The gospel, quote, isn't doing what it's supposed to do, end quote. 
The person that we've loved for so long has rejected the message of salvation. The friend that we've prayed for for years is indifferent to the hope that we're trying to offer. And so like Paul, we often say our spirit cannot find rest. See, Paul's ministry depression, if you will, was so bad that in verse 13, he writes, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. In other words, the discouragement was too great for me to stay in Troas, and so I left. I I left the open door that God had given me because my soul was so troubled. It's in that frame of mind that Paul writes, it's, it's in that season of despondency that Paul now pens these next four verses. Look in your Bibles at verse 14. He says, but, but, thanks be to God. How rarely do we utter the words in the midst of spiritual despondency, but thanks be to God. How infrequently do I get on my knees before the Father in the midst of depression and say, but thanks be to God. Now it's interesting, Paul's going to tell us why we should give thanks, but we're going to notice that it has nothing to do with Paul's circumstances changing. It's not like he gets to Macedonia, he gets report that 284 uh, people have been converted in Troas, and then he says, but thanks be to God. Circumstances don't change, yet Paul says during discouragement, but thanks be to God. I think we can learn so much from the resolve of Paul that in the midst of discouragement, regardless of what factors around us change, there is something, or should we say someone, who never changes. And the union that we have with him is enough to produce in us lasting joy. You see, what Paul is about to lay out here, these objective truths, they make us delight in the midst of sorrow. They give us encouragement in the seasons of despondency. But thanks be to God. Why does he say we should have thanks in God? Let's continue. He writes, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Let's see if I can explain what this verse refers to, this idea of Christ leading us in triumphal procession. Because uh, I think if we miss the historical context here, we may not understand what he's saying. So in ancient Rome, it was tradition that if a general met certain qualifications and if he had a decisive military victory, that he was rewarded with a, uh, a, a conquest triumphal entry through the city of Rome. Uh, and, and these were very rare. They only happened about once a year, not per general, but in the entire city of Rome. And there was a very specific set of requirements for Rome to hold one of these triumphal entries. First, the Roman general had to take over a new province or new land, meaning the Roman Empire had to expand. Next, there had to be no surviving military presence there. It couldn't be like a 75% victory. It had to be total 100% absolute victory. And finally, the Roman army had to lose under a certain amount of people. So, for instance, if the Roman army lost 5,000 people, the enemy couldn't also lose 5,000 people. They had to lose far more than what the Roman army lost. And so when all of this would happen, there was this grand parade, this triumphal procession, and you would have had the general up front with his chariots, with his trumpeteers behind him, with the heralders, here comes the general. 
You would have had musicians and drummers. You would have had just absolute, you know, just absolute pageantry. You would have had the military personnel behind them, colonels uh, and different generals who served under him. Then you would have had the regular soldiers who actually went in and did the work. And then a couple hundred yards behind them, shackled, you would have the prisoners of war. You would have those who came from the conquered land who communicated to the people watching over the streets of Rome, we have won the victory. We have won the battle. Now, another major part of this was the incense that they would burn. It was a strong fragrance that would accompany the chariots and the horses. And this incense would rise and the smell would just scream to those lining the streets, victory has come to Rome. And this incense was smelled by all who were in attendance and all who were in this processional. See, this entire scene of the processional would have immediately come to the minds of the words of Paul's listeners. When they read this, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, they would have had this at the forefront of their minds. What is Paul saying here? Well, I I think this is the point of the text. Uh, One thing I love about Bull Street and Calvin's preaching is that he always preaches expositionally, which means he seeks to expose the meaning of the text as the main point of his message. So what is the main point of our text? What is the main point of this message? Here it is. Take heart, for Christ has won the battle, and all who are united to him have also won the battle. In other words, Jesus has conquered every foe. There is no enemy that now poses a threat to the conquering king, Jesus. Not death, not hell, not the devil, not earthly powers, right? What does Psalm 2 tell us? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Christ has claimed the victory once and for all for not only himself, but for all who are found in him. And in so claiming this victory, he has brought all of us who are found in him along for the ride in this glorious procession of triumphal entry. See, Paul, in the midst of discouragement, looks up and says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ in triumphal procession, meaning we who are now united to Christ claim the same victory which Christ has won. And this victory came chiefly over sin and death at the cross. You see, when Jesus went to the cross to die on behalf of sinners like us, he went to, to make war with, with cosmic forces. That's not all that he did, but it's part of what he did. And for a while, for a brief moment, it seemed like the devil and sin and death had defeated him when he <sighs> breathed his last. I think we even sing the song, King of Kings, all of heaven held its breath. Right? We, we see that in this moment of death, when it seems like all is lost, First Peter tells us that something happened. And this is kind of up for debate, but, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. It, it says that he descended into Hades and proclaimed victory over the souls there. Now, sometime later, 36 hours or so, he comes bursting forth from the grave. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. And Ephesians 4 tells us, That in ascending, or maybe resurrecting, depending on your interpretation, that he led a host of captives. 
In so leading a host of captives, he has shouted once and for all, for all who trust in him, I am victorious and so are you. See, through the cross and the resurrection, Christ has defeated sin for all who would trust in him. He proclaimed victory, a decisive victory, which will come to pass one day in this eternal triumphal procession, the likes of which Revelation 19 describes this way. This is actually just after what Jane read for us yesterday in the service. Just listen to this, Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flaming fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on horses. Wow. That is the grand processional that we look forward to one day. What are we saying? What is Paul saying? He is saying that Jesus, through his work, has defeated every enemy of God thereby bringing ultimate victory to all who are found in him. That's the point of this text. You see, as we consider the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, we often talk about the forgiveness of sins, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all of those things are true and they are good and right. But there's another perspective which would say that what was accomplished at the cross is that Christ became the victor. He is now victorious. Uh, You might hear it said, Jesus wins. And uh, almost every new worship song is predicated on this idea, right? Uh, See a victory, unstoppable God, rattle, like you name it. They all kind of rest on this idea of Jesus being victorious. And sometimes those of us who believe firmly in justification by faith alone, meaning that the righteousness of Jesus was imputed or given to all who would trust in him, sometimes we grow a little wary of this idea of Jesus wins or Christus victor. Because often these two beliefs, that victory was won at the cross, And that the central theme of the gospel is justification by faith alone. Sometimes these are pitted together, or rather pitted against each other in an unhelpful way. See, I think some of us don't like the idea of Jesus' victory won at the cross because we've come to hold on to these five solas so dearly. I think this text is a good reminder for those of us that would cherish and herald the doctrine of justification by faith alone that there was also a victory which took place at the cross. There was a defeat of every effort of sin and the death and devil that Christ has won decisively for all who would trust in him. And the victory of Christ over his enemies is now something that we as believers should take comfort in and embrace and love and cherish. Paul doesn't say, but thanks be to God who was the propitiation for our sins, who gave us justification through faith. He knows all those things to be true. He talks about that in Romans, right? In fact, I think Paul would argue that our justification by faith is the grounds for our victory in Christ. But what does he draw our attention to? Thanks be to God who in Christ has led us in triumphal procession. There is a victory which brings 
comfort to the soul of the believer in the midst of distress and discouragement. And so I think we need to be those who would say, yes, we are justified by faith, but yes, we are conquerors in Christ. Romans 8 tells us we are more than conquerors. He doesn't stop there, though. Continuing in our text, he says, not only is there cause for the joy, the victory of Christ, furthermore, there is joy because through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's what he says at the end of verse 14. In other words, Christians, we can take joy in the fact that God chooses to use us in the advancement of his gospel. The knowledge of God, the awareness of God, the aroma of God is advanced through his people. It's encouraging, it's humbling, and it's joy-inducing. The fact that we have been chosen to play a part in the kingdom advancement of Christ. Friends, God did not need us to advance his kingdom. He could have done it through any means necessary, but he has chosen, he has seen fit in his good pleasure because this is what brings him the most glory to use us as finite, sinful, once rebellious people to now be the means by which he advances the gospel on earth. Romans 10, how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone preaches? How will they preach unless someone is sent? How beautiful are those who bring good news? So the question is asked now, do you find joy in evangelizing the lost? Do you take heart? Do you say, thanks be to God, because we now get to play a part in the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Paul says that he has seen fit to use us as the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So, in our marriages and in our parenting, from the coffee shops to the gas stations, from the elementary school classrooms to the university lecture halls, from the boardrooms to the break rooms, to our unbelieving family members that we think there is no way they will ever come to know Christ. Here we read, we are the aroma of Christ. Now, interestingly, verse 14 tells us that we are the aroma of Christ spreading everywhere to all men. But then verse 15 tells us that there's a subtle change to this aroma. I'm interested if you pick up on it in your Bibles, it says, for we are the aroma of Christ. To whom? To God. Oh, this is interesting. Not only are we the sweet smell of, those, of Christ to those around us, but we are now exuding the pleasantness which is pleasing to the nostrils of God. Not that he has nostrils, but you know what I'm saying. Those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are walking in Jesus, those of us who are trying to spread the knowledge of him to all, it says that we are the aroma of Christ to God. He is pleased with the smell of his people. We don't think of this often, that the sovereign creator of the universe actually enjoys the scent of his people. But it says there, we are the aroma of Christ to God. The verse continues. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Meaning that this side of eternity, we will give off the aroma, not only to God, but also to everyone. To those who are believers, to those who are perishing. 
to the repentant and to the unwavering in disobedience. Let's compare and contrast these two smells to these two audiences. Verse 16 tells us, for we are the fragrance from death to death to one, but to the other, we are the fragrance from life to life. Simply put, our aroma as we walk in Christ, as we evangelize, as we seek to share the love of God, our aroma is recognized by those who are heading to both eternal life and those who are heading to eternal death. Our smell, as those who smell like Jesus, isn't neutral to anyone. To those who are being saved, it is sweet, it's precious, savory and splendid. To those who have a heart that's changed by God, our smell is marvelous. It's what the person wants, it's what they wanna hear. They know Christ and they want to know him more. If you've ever shared the gospel with someone and you've seen the scales fall off their eyes, you know what it's like. I, I wanna know more. Oh, I, I wanna hear more, teach me more. Let's, let's sing more, let's read more. The smell of Christ to them becomes sweet. However, the aroma of the evangelist and the message that they bring to the one who rejects God, to the one who chooses death, to the one who in their fallen state says, I want to remain here, that aroma becomes an aroma of death. Just like the processional in ancient Rome, there were some in the front close to the general who smelled that incense all day long. They experienced it as a sweet smell and a sweet aroma. And what it communicated to them was victory is ours. But a couple hundred yards back, for those in shackles, those prisoners of war, they inhaled that same smell. But to them, it meant death. The gallows were coming. At the end of this processional means I'm going to die. The smell didn't change physiologically, but it was perceived awfully different by those who were with the winner and those who were in the back. Paul says, it's the same when it comes to gospel ministry. The gospel, while sweet to those who respond in faith, is horrifying to those who reject it. Because the gospel, while it promises salvation to all who believe, it equally promises death to all who do not. And I take no pleasure in saying that. Those who persist in unbelief, those who reject the ways of Christ, those who care nothing for the glorious gospel, they are guaranteed death. The message does not change. It offers hope and life to all who believe. It smells beautiful to those who respond in faith. But to those who reject it, oh, it's distasteful. I want to illustrate this by reading John chapter 3, verse 16. If you have your Bibles, turn there. John 3.16 is perhaps the most well-known verse in the church today. Most of you memorize this from a young age, but I want you to notice this comparison and contrasting of the message of the gospel to those that believe and to those who don't. Picking up in verse 13, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Boy, isn't that good news? 
That is precious to the soul who believes. That smells pretty nice. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen. Hallelujah. That smells good. And verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Amen. But... Oh, here's where this aroma starts to turn a little bit sour for those who do not believe. But, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus's words, not mine. Whoever does not believe is condemned. Friends, as you and I go out to share the gospel, we share the gospel as an offer of hope. And when it is received by faith, it is a sweet aroma to those who accept it. But to reject the gospel is to reject life because the gospel is clear in what it says. The gospel says that all of us, regardless of background, regardless of of status, regardless of, of ethnicity, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is guilty of something called sin. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. There's no way to avoid that. The wages of sin is death. So all of us under heaven are now indicted by sin and the wages of our sin is death. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. Meaning Jesus, the son of God, the eternal son of God, came to earth to live with us and to walk with us and to teach us and to be a model for us. But more than that, to go to the cross to be the substitute for our sins. He came to die in place of sinners. And on the cross, he took not only our sin, but he also took the death that we deserve. He went to the cross to be the satisfaction of God's wrath for all who would trust in him. That is the good news that is offered to you today. That Jesus who died is now risen. That Jesus who rose is now interceding on behalf of his children. And if you believe in him, if you trust in that message, if you repent of your sins, you shall be saved. That's the gospel. All of us have just smelled something. How does it sit with you? Honestly, I mean, before we get to the fact that this is what we should spread to everyone and they're going to have a chance to receive this or deny it, how does the gospel resonate in your nostrils? Is it good? Is it sweet? Do you say, praise God, this is life-giving? Or do you reject it and say, no, I want to live my way. I don't want what Christ has offered. I want to stand here in my sin, in my rebellion. Friends, if if that's where you are today, you'll start to notice that the scent of the gospel is pretty sour. Because what it does is it proclaims death to all who reject it. That's sobering. I'm, I'm asking you right now, how does the gospel smell to you? Not your kids. Not your neighbor, not the person sitting next to you, not the person you're thinking, oh, I I need to tell them about the gospel. How does the gospel smell to you? Is it the aroma of life or is it the aroma of death? Sweet perfume, fresh flowers, ocean breeze, or any other Yankee candle smell you can think of? (laughs) Or is is it the smell that causes you to recoil? Like, like changing a dirty diaper. I don't like that. Get it out of the room. Friends, do you know yourself to be lost? Do you know yourself to be at enemy, an enemy with God? 
See, my fear is that we think of those who reject the message of the gospel as, as only the extreme cases. Uh, we think, okay, my neighbor, he's a Muslim, he's an atheist, right? Uh, this lady I know, she's a pagan, she wants nothing to do with God. But I think so many more in our churches uh, actually smell the gospel and resist it than we care to admit. And, and my fear as a pastor is that one day people will stand before God and, uh, and the gospel <laughs> that's been presented to them over and over, which has been sour the whole time, that gospel will then have, have no more opportunity to save them. And they will hear those dreaded words, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. How does the gospel smell to you today? Because here's the good news. Even if the gospel is sour to you today, today could be the day of salvation. Today, you, you could be transformed from one of those rebels in shackles, a prisoner of war, to a general in the king's army. You see, what, what, what's beautiful about this processional is that all of us who are with Christ, united to him, walking in victory, all of us were at one time shackled as enemies of God. We were all prisoners of war, but God in his kindness has transformed the hearts of his people to now be victors. And so where do you stand today? If you reject the message of the gospel, if it smells sour to you, then may I just encourage you, may I plead with you through the love of Christ to turn to him, to trust in him, to not reject this message that is once sour to you, but now to smell it anew and realize this is the message of hope. So, Paul tells us that this gospel will smell good to some and it will smell bad to others and the message doesn't change. Often the presentation doesn't change. It just depends on the soil upon which it lands. All right, let's continue. He says there at the end of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? It's kind of a rhetorical question implied in that is that no one is sufficient for these things. Left to ourselves, we cannot be heralders of this precious gospel. In fact, the next chapter, you can look at it, chapter three, verse five, answers that question. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency comes from God. So who is sufficient for these things? No one left to ourselves, but with Christ, we are. Verse 17, our final verse. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but we are men of sincerity. As commissioned by God, the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Meaning, friends, as we herald this gospel, which is sour to some and sweet to others, as we proclaim it, we don't do it as salesmen. We're not peddling a gospel. We are actually doing it out of sincerity. And all we have to proclaim is Christ and Christ alone. As we just sang, what is our hope in life and death? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. That's all we have. That's all we proclaim. We are not salesmen. We don't come to your door and say, but wait, there's more. No, all we have is Christ. Take him or leave him. 
It's what we got to offer. If you want something newer, if you want something fancier, if you want something flashier, then go somewhere else. But we, unlike peddlers, unlike salesmen, we have Christ and Christ alone. And that's the resolve of the evangelist. Yes, you will be discouraged. Yes, you will be disheartened. But thanks be to God who's led us in Christ in this triumphal procession. Not only that, thanks be to God that we now get to spread the aroma of Christ to everyone, everyone everywhere. And we're the aroma of Christ to God. Now, some people, they love this message. They sniff it. They're pleased to respond in faith. Others, they smell this and it is the scent of death and they reject it and they want nothing to do with it. So who is sufficient to do these things? No one outside of Christ. All we have is the gospel to proclaim. So as we conclude, I want to give you six points of application. I'm just going to read them to you. I'm not going to explain them. I don't know if they're necessarily points of application as much as they are concluding thoughts. Concluding thought number one, discouragement, which is inevitable, is combated only by looking up. Not looking in, not even looking around, but looking up. But thanks be to God. Number two, when we look up, we see the victory that we have in Christ and nothing can touch us. Nothing. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. When we look up, we see the victory that we have in Jesus. Concluding thought number three, we are not only victorious, but we are also an aroma. We are a smell to some death and to others' life. Concluding thought number four, we must ask the question, we must do self-reflection, how does the message of the gospel smell to us? Application number five, we are called to share this message of Christ knowing that we are the means by which those are saved. We are the ones who have the aroma of Christ to give to people. And there is no plan B in the, uh, in the salvation plan of God, right? How will they hear unless we preach? Well, they won't. So spread the aroma of Christ. And then finally, number six, we must not use fancy tactics. We must be, we must be faithful to proclaim the ordinary yet immensely powerful message of salvation. That those who were once shackled on their way to death have now been set free by the love of Christ, have now been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who now serve as the aroma of Christ to those around them. We have the message of hope, so let's take it and see what God does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your word is truth and you sanctify it, sanctify your people through it. Thank you, Father, that, that we are the aroma of Christ. Thank you that for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we have been transformed and we now exist to proclaim that gospel. Lord, as we go, we will experience discouragement, but wait, may we, Lord, through the encouragement of the Apostle Paul, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's in his precious name we pray, which smells so good to us this morning. Amen.